morning we're going to wrap up Hebrews chapter 6. And as you find your way there, I want to tell you a story about one of my favorite toys from childhood. Um, When I was five years old, I got an inflatable Bozo the Clown. He stood about yay high. Okay, Bozo the Clown punching bag. He was awesome, right? He had bright red inflatable hair that stuck off of his head like horns on a longhorn bull, right? I mean, it was great. And he had a bright red nose that you could blow up. And when you hit him in the nose, it would squeak, right? And no matter how hard you hit Bozo, I mean, you could just boom, and you hit him hard. Okay, you, you can still buy this on Amazon, incidentally. All right? Uh, but he, he, no matter how hard you hit him, because he had, he had sand in the bottom... He would, you know, he'd rock over all the way, but then he'd pop right back up and be ready for a round two, right? And it was great. It was a fun toy um, until he started losing air. Uh, but uh, uh, he was relentless in his perseverance, right? And, and here in Hebrews chapter 6, that is what the writer of Hebrews is exhorting all of us to, is the kind of relentless perseverance that no matter how hard you hit us, we keep popping right back up again. Uh, you can knock us down, but here we, here we go again. We're going to keep right on proclaiming Christ. We're going to keep right on living for Jesus. And it does not matter what you do to us. We're going to keep coming. Amen? Uh, you know, when, uh, when, when Peter and John got whooped, by the Sanhedrin, and they did. They got flogged, 39 lashes with a whip. And they went out of there rejoicing and said, Today we lettered. Amen? Today we learned what it is to follow Jesus, and they rejoiced to suffer for the cause of Christ, knowing that it is worth it. Amen? No matter, no matter what happens to us, If we suffer, it's not a big deal. Jesus Christ suffered for me, and I'm therefore willing to suffer for him. So uh, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6 today. But in case you missed the message on the previous previous portion of that chapter, I want to get you oriented again. Uh, Verses 1 to 8 of Hebrews chapter 6 is a stern warning against falling away from the faith. And it reminds, those, uh, reminds us that those who depart from the faith experience God's judgment if they do not repent and turn back to Him. Uh, because what is happening in their life if they fall away from the faith is that their life is beginning to produce thorns and thistles instead of useful crops, and therefore they are marked for God's judgment instead of for God's blessing. Now, by contrast to that, the verses we're going to look at here in just a second are all encouragement. There's no warnings in here. It's all encouragement. It's all exhortation to keep persevering, to keep hanging in there, to keep pursuing Jesus, and to keep following Him in the teeth of what is admittedly for these people that He's writing to some very severe, strong persecution. 
So before we jump into that, let's, read, uh, let's, uh, let's pray, and before we read, and uh, let's get, uh, get our hearts right before the Lord. God, our Heavenly Father, we can never address you enough. We can never call out to you enough because we are in need all the time of your Holy Spirit's intervention and of your miraculous interference in our lives to bring us close to you. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us into your word and you would help us to be changed in our hearts and to live that out. Knowing that the world we live on is not our home court, that we are here at an away game, and that we will be until the day we stand with you. Father, help us to stand firm in the faith and to be a light in a dark, in a dark culture among people whose hearts are darkened away from you. And Father, uh, we pray for your word to transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beginning in verse 9 there, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to, to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, early in my pastoral ministry, I had a mentor that took me aside before I was going to preach my first message, took me aside and he said, now... You need to know something. You need to never give a message that's personally directed to anyone specific. Uh, not only is that an abuse of your pastoral authority, but they won't be there to hear it anyway. <laughs> and if they are there, they won't think it applies to them. So it's just wasted breath. <laughs> okay. And this passage, this chunk of, of Hebrews chapter 6... Uh, is, is written there because sometimes a pastor can succeed in making the wrong people feel convicted. And in the first eight verses here of, of chapter 6, like I say, he's been giving this strong warning. And he says, and he's worried that some of the people who are reading this are going to be like, whoa, whoa, hold on, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe I'm messing up here. Maybe I never really trusted in Christ. Maybe I'm expecting judgment instead of blessing from God. Maybe I won't be in eternity in heaven. Maybe I'm lost. And he wants to reassure those people that no, don't worry. Don't worry. Even though we talk about talk like this, we feel confident of better things as it, as it pertains to you. Uh, and he, look at the words that he uses. He says, beloved, sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He says, as I look at your, at your life and at your faith, that I can, I can see that your life is indeed producing fruit instead of thorns and thistles. He is, uh, so he is sure of the, their salvation, at least as sure as anybody else can be about 
someone else. And he is trying to uh, reassure them, even as he is warning them that they're headed toward danger because he loves them. And verse 10 tells us why he has such confidence, why he thinks, as he looks at their life, you know, that, you know, you do belong to the Lord. It's because he sees their love and their service for one another and to other believers. He says, overlook your work, that is the service that they're doing, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So in other words, this is not something that they used to do. This is something that is ongoing in the present. That I look at you and I can see your love for other people. I can see you serving them. And I know that, that only people who know Jesus Christ in a real way exhibit the kind of love and service that you are doing. You know, the reality is, according to the Scriptures, we are saved by grace alone. Amen? Say yes. Okay, amen. Okay, we are saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, right? Amen. In Christ alone. Amen, right? But the faith that saves you is never alone. Say amen. 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 Okay. In other words, saving faith is something that produces a result. If there is no fruit, it is because there is no root. Amen. Amen. Saving faith produces fruit. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no man can boast, right? Everybody knows those verses, right? I hope you know those verses. If you don't, write them on your hand and learn those verses, right? Um, those are great verses, but you know what Ephesians 2.10 says? For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. In other words, saving faith results in something. It results in a visible change in the kind of person that you are. That you, as a result of your faith, love and serve your brothers and sisters. That your life has changed. You are not the same person you used to be. Right? That is not that you do good works in order to obtain salvation, but that good works are the result. They are the necessary result. Because everyone whom God saves, he also puts to work within the body of Christ. There is a result, and he can see the result. And he says, look, and God is not unjust to overlook your work either. He sees it too, and therefore you can have assurance that your faith is real. He says, not only can I see it, but God can see it. He can tell that your faith is real because you have love and service toward other people. And so he says, look, don't worry. Here's what he's, here's what he's trying to tell them in verse 9 and 10. Don't worry may have succeeded in scaring some of you that have sensitive consciences. Verses 1 to 8, 
that you might not know the Lord. But he says, no, I'm confident that you do know the Lord and that he knows you because your life is bearing fruit. Now, verse 11 and 12 are more encouragement to keep on persevering in the faith, to keep on popping back up like the uh, bozo punching bag in, in spite of all of the opposition that they are facing. He says, some of you have gotten sluggish in your pursuit of Christ. Don't want you to be sluggish. And the word translated sluggish there in ESV is the same word translated dull in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 11. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 11, when he said, talks to them about you've grown dull of hearing. You know, when you, when you, have, a, um, when you have a sharp knife... You can, you can accomplish a lot, right? You can slice those tomatoes just right down to there. You know, you can, uh, and not mash them. You can slice the bread and not crush it all down. You can uh, accomplish a whole lot. But when you have a dull knife, what, what happens? You're, you know, you get, you, get to, you get to sawing away at stuff, right? Can't even cut my apple right. This knife is so dull. This is terrible, right? And you have to apply so much more effort because it's dull, and it takes longer, and it's a pain in the neck, right? Um, the idea is the same here. He says, I don't want you to get slow. I don't want you to, to, grow, uh, to, to grow the opposite way in your faith. Uh, some of these people that he's writing to have uh, what my dad used to describe when he would give us a task and we were kind of taking our time with it, you know, like milking it and, you know, a two-hour job became like an eight-hour job. He'd be like, y'all have got the slows, right? It was an affliction that was diagnosed at our house, right, regularly. And they would say, he'd say, look, you need to stop having the slows and apply yourself to get this done. You do not have all day here. Get this done. Move, boy. Right? I've repeated some of that with my own kids. Right? Um, These verses are an encouragement to them to throw some more wood on the fire. To apply themselves because then they will have complete assurance that their faith is real all the way to the end. And by rekindling the fire, they will show that their faith has the same character as the people who received God's promises. Now, it's not a sin to write in your Bible, so I want you to write in your Bible, and I want you to underline two words in verse 12. Faith and patience. Faith and and patience. They go together, those two words, faith and patience, go together. Because real faith is one that endures over time. It's not just a flash in a pan. You know, one cynic described, described uh, Christians as people who are an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. <laughs> right? That should not be true. And that is not what Hebrews 6 is encouraging people toward. It's, it's encouraging people toward the opposite of that. That faith endures over time. And that 
You want to imitate the faith of people who received God's promises, and the way that they did was that their faith endured over time. Despite obstacles, despite opposition, despite difficulty, their faith endured over time. And now in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to get a long list of examples and commentary on all kinds of people out of the Old Testament who by faith received God's promises. But before we get there, we're going to get a quick snapshot in the person of Abraham, which is who he talks about in verses 13 to 15. So read your Bible here with me. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, I don't know how how well you remember Abraham's story from the book of Genesis, but Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis chapter 12. And his wife Sarah was 65 when God called him to leave your Leave your house and your father's people and go to Canaan, and there I will make you a great nation, and there I will bless you, and there I will give you the land that I will show you, and all nations of the earth will be blessed through you, is what God told him. He said, you'll get a land of your very own, and I'll give you a multitude of descendants, and I will bless every nation on the earth through you. Now, Abraham is 75 years old, his wife is 65, and he says, and I'm going to make you a great nation with many descendants. Now, how many descendants does Abraham have at his 75th birthday? Zero. How many does Sarah, how many kids does Sarah have? Zero. Okay. Now, do you know how long they waited before they had their first child together? Twenty Five years. Now, I know occasionally you read in the tabloids or whatever, you know, a 70-year-old woman has twins or whatever, okay? This lady is 90 years old. Her husband is 100 years old when they have their firstborn son, Isaac, together. Do you think that was a long wait I mean, I don't know if, I mean, we've got, I think, I think Twyla's here. Yeah, I see her there. Okay. She's 90, uh, what, 93? 92. Okay, sorry. Added a year. Okay. Can I just tell you, that's a long time. 90 years old and you're bouncing a two-year-old on your knee, right? I mean, at 92, you're bouncing your two-year-old son on your knee, right? Now, I tell you what, we have four kids in our house, and we look back, I'm just 42, and we look back on all the times we had to get up in the night with that screaming child, and we go, man, you got to have your kids while you're young, right? So you can keep up with them, right? And I'm not, I'm not 100 years old, right? Can you imagine? Honey, it's time for... Time for the uh, 2 a.m. feeding. Hang on a second. Let me get my walker and my teeth. <laughs> right? They waited a long time to have their first child. Okay? And yet, 
through all of that, Abraham continued to believe God's promises, and they, he continued to wait on their fulfillment year after year after year after year. Abraham believed God. Now, that doesn't mean he did it perfectly. That doesn't mean he sometimes didn't take an unfaithful detour. He did. But over time, his faith grew along with his patience. And God granted him the son that he promised all along, along with the fulfillment of all of his other promises too. Did he get a land? You bet he did. Did he get a multitude of descendants? Yes, he did. Millions of descendants. Were all the nations on the earth blessed through Abraham? You bet. In fact, I, I happen to be particularly fond of one particular descendant of Abraham. Amen? In fact, he's the reason that we're gathered here. Though we are not, most of us at least, by genetics in any way related to Abraham. You know, a lot of us are Ostrogoths and Visigoths and Celts and whatever else, right? These barbarian tribesmen were wearing bearskins in the time of Jesus, right? We're those people's descendants. We're Spaniards and Italians and Romans and Gauls. We're nations that were never mentioned in the Scriptures. But we have been blessed through Abraham and his descendants. Amen? God's promises were all fulfilled. All fulfilled. Because Abraham had faith and patience in God's promises and in the God who made them. Amen? God kept his promises. And there's some additional encouragement for us here to hang in there and to keep trusting the Lord, patiently waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. Verse 16 to 20. Because God and his promises are unchanged and unchangeable. Look at verse 16 to 20 with me. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when you're a human being and you deal with other human beings, one of the things that you quickly discover is that human beings are completely unreliable. All right. we, we say we'll do things, and then circumstances change, and then we want to alter our commitment, right? You know, it's like the, uh, it's like the old, old joke about politicians. 
that a bunch of these politicians die and they, uh, they go up to heaven. And it's pretty nice. And they love it. And they behold God face to face. And they enjoy all of the blessings and the beauty of being in heaven. And uh, St. Peter comes to them and he says, well, you know, we're not used to having very many politicians that come here. And so, so we want to give you another opportunity to, um, you know, to make a decision as where you'd like to spend eternity. Uh, it's a rare thing. We don't do that on a normal basis, but we're going to let you have the opportunity. And so we want you to also spend a day in hell, and then after the end of the day, you can decide which you like better. Well, they're like, well, okay, I guess that's the way it works. So they go down to hell, and there's this, there's this beautiful golf course, and all of their political buddies are down there, and everybody's smoking a big cigar, and just enjoying life and having a great time. At the end of their play 18 holes, and at the end, you know, they eat a big steak and, uh, and drink some bourbon together, and they're just having a ball. And so then, uh, at the end of the day, Peter comes to him again and says, well, what'd you decide, guys? And he says, well, we, we all talked it over, and we decided that, you know, heaven's really nice, but, but hell's pretty great. So we decided we we're going to go there. Well, when they get there, everything is on fire, and there's, the golf course is gone, and there's no restaurant, and there's no cigars, and there's no bourbon, and it's just all this fiery, nasty, horrible place. And they run into the devil there, and they say, what's the deal? It, yesterday it was great, and this is horrible. They say, well, yesterday we were campaigning, and today you voted. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Human beings are not reliable. Amen? And so we always make promises and we make oaths, right? When we were little kids, you know, we'd be like, oh, pinky swear, you know, cross your heart and hope to die. Swear on your mother's grave, right? And we even carry this on into the legal realm, don't we? When we, when we want uh, a politician to keep his word, now again, I understand this is a limited time offer, okay. But nevertheless, when we put the guy into office, what do we have him do? Put your hand on the word of God and raise your right hand. You solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, right? Um, when we go into a criminal trial, same deal. Put your hand on the Word of God. Do you swear to, sell, to tell the, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? So help you God. Right? Do you swear? Why do we have people do that? Because people don't keep their word. They don't. And they always swear because they want, to, they want to somehow in some circumstances say, well, this time I really am going to keep my word. They always come up with an oath or they swear to something. 
and they always swear by something greater than themselves, by their mother or by the, the Bible or by whatever, right? But look at verse 17 and 18 here and follow the argument with me. When God wants to make us certain that we who understand and believe his promises, that those promises are going to be kept. He has a problem, doesn't he? He can't swear by anything greater because he is already the greatest being in the universe. There is nothing greater than God and his word to swear by. And we should not worry... Because God has made them and he has confirmed them, according to the scriptures, with an oath. And so we have two unchangeable things to rely on. We have God's word, where he made us the promise. And his character can never change. Can never change. The Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you are not destroyed. We do not need to worry that God's character is ever going to change. And he also confirmed his character with an oath. And he said, I will certainly do this for you. And so we have, and since it's impossible for God to lie, we have double the assurance that God's promises to us in Jesus Christ are going to be kept. And God has gone to this extraordinary length for us precisely to provide us with encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. What's the hope that we have? Our hope is our eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So how do you know that you're going to have eternal life and that you're going to enjoy it forever on God's presence on the last day? Well, so far we've seen three things that give us assurance. First, we have the assurance that comes through the fact that our faith is bearing fruit in love and service to our brothers and sisters. That's verses 9 through 12. You want assurance that your faith is real? Is it producing fruit? That's, that would give you assurance. Uh, but in addition to that, we have the unchanged and unchangeable character of God himself. And then we also have the unchanged and unchangeable oath of God to bring his promises to, to fruition in our life. And so we have three solid biblical pieces of great encouragement for you and for me that we will forever enjoy eternal life. You got time for one more? There's one more here in these verses. Look at verses 19 to 20. A few quick things here I want you to see. First, circle the word anchor in your Bible. The word anchor. If you go to the Priscilla Catacombs in Rome, you will see dozens of anchors, as I understand it, carved into the wall. And the reason is from these verses right here. You know what an anchor is? An anchor is something solid, something heavy, 
that keeps your boat from drifting away when the waves crash and the winds blow. And you know who our anchor is? Jesus. Our faith is not some mad hope that we have. It's not resting on nothing substantial. It is tied off to Jesus. And Jesus has already done what we are trusting Him that we will one day be able to do, which is to be raised from the dead and to enter into the presence of God. Jesus has already done that. And we are trusting that He is able to enable us to do that as well. I want want to show you this here, verse 19. You see that language there? about the inner place behind the curtain. Do you know what that is? What he's talking about there is in the tabernacle and the temple, you had a division within the temple proper between the holy place and the most holy place. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, You have seen a representation of what the ark looked like. And the ark was a wooden box, and it had two cherubim up on top that represented... Uh, the, the presence of God, the holiness of God. And God was, was pictured in the Old Testament as enthroned above those two cherubim on top of the ark, as if this was his throne. And God's presence did dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple. You had the Shekinah glory cloud that came down from heaven and rested above this thing. But that, that ark in the Holy of Holies was protected by a veil, a thick curtain that hung in front of it. And, and only the high priest, and only once a year on the, rare, on the right day, and only with the blood of sacrifice could go behind that curtain. Because to go into the presence of a holy God was a dangerous thing. And he had to go past this curtain that was also woven into it, two cherubim. And those two cherubim are significant. You know where else you see two cherubim? Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And when they sin... They are put out of the Garden of Eden. Part of their judgment is that they are cast out of the Garden. They can't live in God's presence anymore. And do you remember what God put there to guard the way back? Two cherubim. But when Jesus died, when Jesus died, as you can read this in the Gospels, the curtain that separated God presence and the ark from everything else in the temple was ripped from top to bottom all the way down symbolizing that a way had been made to enter again into God's presence without fear and do you know who was able to enter into God's presence that way you and me. But we come through Jesus, the high priest, who first entered into God's presence behind the curtain for us. 
you'll remember that that when Adam sinned, his sin involved a tree, right? And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on a tree to atone for all the sin of Adam's descendants. And because of that sacrifice, we have a forerunner who enters in to the, through the veil into the presence of God. And it's no longer, therefore, for us a fearful thing to come into the presence of God. It's a joyful thing. It's a time when we get to experience one day we will enter into the presence of God and it will not, we will not be afraid. We will instead experience the joy of fellowship with God that we, are, we were created for and which no one has been able to experience apart from Jesus ever since the garden. And one day we're going to enter through the veil. We're going to stand in the presence of God because we have a great high priest who is our forerunner who is already there and he has tied our boat off to him and he is pulling us into shore amen how do I know that that's going to happen I know because God's character and his promises are unchanged and unchangeable. And Jesus has already done what we will one day do because of our faith in Him. So, are you encouraged today? Hope so. Uh, I hope you know deep in every recess and crevice of your soul that God and His promises are unchanged and unchangeable. I hope that you know that we have a Savior who has passed through the curtain and into the presence of God and who is able to take us there as well and who one day will certainly do so. I hope that you're encouraged to hold fast to your hope because we have strong encouragement from these two unchangeable things. Amen? We have encouragement in the Word, from the God with whom it is impossible to lie. And thus, we know for certain what awaits us at the end of the race. And so we hold fast. We persevere no matter what. Amen? We get knocked down and persecuted and assaulted and imprisoned and killed, but we don't worry about it. Why? Because we have an anchor that holds us fast behind the veil and pulls us into the presence of God through faith in Him. Now, if you are sitting out there today and you go, yeah, 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 okay, sounds great, that's interesting, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this Jesus that you're speaking of. I may have been to church a few times, but I don't know Jesus personally. Let me just encourage you that it's very, very simple to come into relationship with God through faith in Jesus. First of all, it's a free gift. You don't earn it and you don't deserve it. 
You can't work for it. You can't be a good enough person. You, you know, it isn't, it isn't, well, if I'm a nice person and my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, well, then I get into heaven. In fact, the Scripture says, all your righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. All your best attempts at being a good person don't count for anything. Because contrary to what a lot of people think, the world does not divide between bad people and good people. It divides between bad people and Jesus. Jesus is the only good person who's ever lived. And the only reason that he is good is that he is the perfect, only begotten Son of God who came into the world to live a life that you and I could not live and die on a cross on our behalf and be raised from the dead to give us new life. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, what the Bible calls faith essentially is this. It is saying, I've got my old and busted life that I've been trying to live on my own. And I want to swap that for new life in Jesus. And I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross as my substitute and his resurrection from the dead to give me new life. And when you do that, an amazing series of things happen. You receive new life from God. The Holy Spirit comes into your life to live and to change you from the inside out. And to mark you with the seal of the Holy Spirit that you will be one of the people, one of the millions and millions of people who will one day stand in the presence of God around his throne. And to enable you further to live for him in the here and now in a way that brings him glory and does you good. So I want to pray, and if anybody has never put their trust in Jesus Christ, I want you to do so right now as we pray. Let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a sure and certain hope that through both the character of God and the oath of God, we can have certainty. These two unchangeable things from a God who will never lie. That we, who are your children, will inherit the promises that you have made to us. Father, help us to hold fast to your promises and to look for the day of Jesus' return when he will bring them all to fruition for us. Father, help us to have faith like Abraham, who as the years passed did not waver but continue to put his trust in the God who does what is impossible and does it with ease. Father, I also pray that if there's anyone here who is hearing about Jesus for the first time, or maybe they've heard about him a bunch, but they've never put their trust in him, Father, I pray that they would put their trust in Jesus Christ right now that they would receive new life in Christ, that the Holy Spirit would regenerate them and renew them and make them yours. 
that they might have and live the new life that you've offered to us through the death and resurrection of the Son. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.